Welcome to season six of the RAG podcast. Now, for those of you who don't know, the RAG stands for Recruitment Agency Growth. And this show has been around since early 2019. And every week, we are obsessed with finding out how the world's most successful and innovative recruitment agencies and their founders have got to where they are today. In season six, alongside the founder's story and the inside information of that business, I also want to focus on the reality of today's economy. There is so much noise about this inevitable recession that we find ourselves in right now. And where it's going to go, is it really having an impact on the recruitment sector? Are they seeing any change in job flow? Are they seeing any change in candidate control or activity? What is going on? I want to find out. So every single week, I want to forget the propaganda, forget the noise. I'm going to speak to a real life recruitment owner and find out what is going on in their business. I will bring it to you every single Wednesday from 12 o'clock across multiple platforms. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the RAG podcast on this week's show. I am joined by Adrian O'Connor, the founder of GAN Global Accounting Network, a business of over 27 people headquartered in the UK with an office in Atlanta. Adrian has been running the business since 2011. In this episode, we talked about a whole host of things, about his journey of growth through those 12 years. We talked about how he has built a remote first culture and how he personally now lives in Lisbon in Portugal and runs the business globally from there. But the big thing that most notably came out of this show was how he and his team have built a methodology and a process that has enabled them to have a much higher fill rate in the, the downturn of the economy. So as job flow has decreased, their fill rate has gone up to 78%. We talked about what do they do when they bring a job on board to ensure that their fill rate is so high. So if you're interested in building a remote first company or having a US-based office or living abroad and working completely remote, or you just want to know more about how you can have a much stronger fill rate in today's economy, this episode is for you. Without further ado, Adrian, welcome to the show and then blah, 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 blah. So without further ado, Adrian, welcome to the RAG podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. It's a pleasure. Pleasure. You are. You look like you're in some form of log cabin right now. Tell me, <laughs> where, where are you, Adrian? What's going on? I am in the loft of my home. Um, we live just outside of Lisbon in a place called Cascais. Um, and so it's sort of a, a Mediterranean-style house that seems to have a log cabin in the roof. Yeah, or like a yoga studio. I went to, I went to Spain. Alicante on a yoga retreat. It was what, a, what a trip that was. If anyone wants to know, I'll tell them where, where it is. Um, and everything looked like that. Everything was was that wooden, you know, log cabin, relaxing. It looks like a, an uber zen spot you're sat in right now. It's pretty chilled. I've had a few clients ask if I'm interviewing them from the sauna. Um, I'm <laughs> gladly I'm not. Um, but no, it's a really nice spot. We're about, as I say, 30 minutes from Lisbon, 15 minutes from the beach. It's a nice place to live. But you're not Portuguese, right? No, no Portuguese connection at all. Do you speak Portuguese now? I'm learning very slowly. Yeah, it's tricky. But you'll get if you live in there, you'll get it, won't you? You'll pick it up. Well, my kids are speaking it, so I need to learn in order to be able to understand what they're plotting against me. Yeah, yeah. What about your wife? Does she speak it? She's learning as well. Um, right. So it's a bit, bit, a bit of competition between she and I as to who's going to get there first. The kids can plot against both of you then at the minute. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And they'll, they'll just get it like like that, right? They will literally just get yeah. it like that. 
yeah. school. Well, they get, they speak it in school, so they're they're learning it because they're going to bilingual schools. And it's not just about learning the words. It's, from what I know of Portuguese, it's the way it's spoken. Like I'm, I used to live with a guy from Madeira, uni, and he, Nuno, Nuno Alessandre de Xera de Jesus da Asafrao. What a name! Good name, great name, um, strong name. Um, but I remember how nasal it was when he spoke. Like you would, it was like you have to kind of almost use a different part of your mouth and your nose to speak Portuguese. I think. Yeah, there's lots of owl type sounds, which I haven't quite got right yet. You'll tell, you'll be able to tell that from the way I just did it. But um, yeah, it's quite a difficult one, uh, and there's lots of different clauses and genders and tenses, and it's, it's tough. Yeah, you'll get it, mate. You'll get it. Well, look, thanks for coming on the show, Adrian. We've known each other a few years, but I've never told. I, I want to find out more about the story. Um, so you are um, obviously a recruitment founder. Do us a favor. Let's start now with who you are today. Give me the bird's eye overview, and then we'll go back and, and tell the story. Okay, cool. So I am a founding partner of Global Accounting Network. Um, Global Accounting Network is a boutique search and headhunting firm, recruiting firm in the accounting and finance space. Uh, we've got about 27 people, I think, at the moment, um, split across London and Atlanta. Uh, so we launched in London in 2011. We launched in Atlanta in 2019, just right before COVID, uh, which was great timing on our part. Um, and so the business is focused on mid to senior accounting and finance, contracts and perm in the UK, Europe and the US. I'm also a founding partner of a business called Hoxton Circle, which is a recruitment firm in New York and LA, focused on accounting and finance again. Hoxton Circle? Yeah. I thought you were going to say Hoxo. I was like, you, what, you, what am I doing? Um, wow, I didn't know that. Wicked. Um, well, let's get into it. So looking back at your experience, you worked in recruitment for a while before launching your business. You were at some big players, right? Was it was it Robert Half and um, you were also at Goodman Massett? So I started in S3. Right. As, okay. as so many people that I'm sure have been on, on the podcast did, it uh, seems to have founded lots and lots of businesses with, with XS3 people. So I joined Real Resourcing or Real IT as it was then. And I was their seventh employee in the third week. Wow. Um, and so it was proper hardcore sales activity. I think on my first day, I got given a list of 150 contacts and told, phone all of them or don't come back tomorrow. You know, it was, it was just proper sales. Who um, was the boss then? Is it someone who's well-known in the industry? Or? So Sean Wadsworth was the boss. Oh, yeah. So Sean went on to, to launch uh, Nigel Frank, yeah, yeah. Frank Recruitment Group, and did really well out of that. So he was the MD of Real IT. He'd been uh, perm director, I think, for Progressive, and then moved across to Real IT. And that was an incredible journey. I mean, we, we were seven people when I joined. I think we grew it to about 100 people in the first four years. Wow. Um, and because the, of the growth, they needed to build infrastructure. So if you were doing well, you kept sort of getting grabbed by the collar and thrown into a bigger job. And you're sitting there thinking, well, I've only just learned the job that I'm doing, or I haven't quite learned the job that I'm doing. Yeah. And they're like, that doesn't matter. Do this one, do this one. Um, and so it was a really good progression, I think. You know, trainee consultant for six months, I was a team leader after about 18 months, team manager after about two and a half years, then regional sales manager after three and a half years. Um, and you got really good training, really beasted on a daily basis. So it taught you that sort of tenacity and resilience. What made you stick it out, though? If, you, if you're given 150 calls in day one or don't come back, like what was it in you that made you decide to come back? Because a lot of people would think, fuck this, I ain't doing that. Yeah, and there were definitely days where I thought that. I think, you know, I... Um, I don't talk too much about personal stuff, but I, I didn't come from money. You know, we, we had a relatively um, 
not poor, but subsistence type upbringing. My mum was a single mum. She worked a couple of jobs, you know, it was, and she worked incredibly hard yeah. uh, in order to provide everything that my brother and I needed. And, um, and I think that I saw recruitment as a chance to make money and pay some of that back. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if you just said to me at that point, this is going to sound really mercenary, but if you just said to me at that point, you can earn a hundred grand a year selling windows, I'd have gone and sold windows. If you just said selling cars, I'd have gone and sold cars. Yeah. It was really about having did you, see an advert, did you see an advert for it or did someone refer you in to Esther? No, I, I was actually working, I was, I was, um, working in psychiatric nursing, uh, and I was working in a, a secure psychiatric hospital. Um, and it was quite, it was, it was fun. It was a good team, but it was quite brutal. Um, yeah, and one of my mates, I think it was a, a month before my 25th birthday, uh, and I just finished university. One of my mates said to me, um, he, he had a 12 grand pay packet that month. I was like, I'm sorry, what? 12 <laughs> grand for a month? Yeah, this yeah. is in 1998. 12 grand was yeah. a lot of money in 1998. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I said, how'd you do that? And he said, recruitment. I was like, well, what's recruitment? And he taught me through it. Um, and I thought, well, if you can do that, I can do it. And he worked for Progressive, and they were just launching Real IC from Progressive. Um, and so he got where, me an where interview. Were you sorry? Where were you living at the time? Clapham. Right, so you're in an expensive part of London with... with yeah, I lived in Clapham when I started in recruitment in London, and it fucking hell. That was the, yeah. I think every night of the week the pubs are that busy, yeah. and I used to get off at Clapham North and come straight out and see the Clapham North pub and think, honestly, about three nights a week, I'd be like, oh, should we go? And then you'd walk down the, I think it's called um, it's Acre Lane, Acre Lane, and then you'd, there'd be another pub. I can't remember the name of it, about hundred meters down, and it'd be busy. And but if yeah. I got home, I did well, but I, I had no money. Like, so I had to do well, otherwise I couldn't afford it. Not that I was a. Yeah big boozer but it's probably the most tempting place in london to live i think at that age yeah it was great and re re realized he was awesome at selling you the dream right so you know they there was no life outside of, of s3 and recruitment it was the best of the best um and you made money quickly you know the training was really good and, and they just got you doing the work and you made money quickly and as long as you were making money quickly you're going to stick it out yeah um and so you know there were definitely days where i thought this is fucking awful um, but then the next day you'd come in and do two deals. So, you know, it was a, it was a proper roller coaster. What um, were you recruiting at the time? Oracle database administrators and developers. Wow. Contracts or perm? Perm. So I, I launched the Oracle desk, re recruited somebody to work in that with me. Then I launched the project management and business analyst desk hmm. and recruited somebody to work in that with me. Um, and it was, it was really good fun. Um, you know, I think Sean was a, a very, very good leader. He got you properly bought in. Um, and beasted you to the point where you were making money and you knew what the recipe was. Um, and we would go out Tuesday night till two in the morning, Thursday night till two in the morning, and you're back in work 7.30 the next day. Um, and, yeah. But you did it as a team. And so, you know, everybody just absolutely thrilled. Most people thrived. It yeah. was good. Yeah. And what made you leave there eventually? So we launched Real IT North, and I was the regional manager for that. And we did it just before the dot-com crash, and then the towers came down. And, mate, honestly, 18 months of phoning people that had never heard of you because we're in a brand-new region, just as they're all making redundancies and, you know, getting laughed off the phone because you, you, know, you, you sound like you don't know what's going on in the world. Um, and spent a year and a half making that business profitable um, and just needed a break, if I'm honest. Um, just, you know, after, after that year and a half, just proving that we could do it, proving we could make it profitable. And I just wanted to get away. So I took a year off and went to Australia 
um, and surfed and dived and got healthy again and you know traveled around and had fun and you know made some fantastic experiences and fantastic friends um, and then came back and got into it again <laughs> so you you moved around a couple of places before launching your business what without going into all the jobs I guess what was it about the different roles that that made you eventually decide you were going to start your own I think I got to the point where I was unemployable um, you know, you just kind of get to the point where somebody's sitting above you asking you what you think are stupid questions becomes really frustrating. Yeah. And, you know, they know you know the answer, you know you know the answer, but you're still having to go through this rigmarole of answering stupid questions every week or month. Uh, and that frustrated me. I think having been, you know, I led a decent sized team in Robert Half, I think I got up to like 60 people. Um, and that, that was a great business. I, I really had fun there. But you'd get these sort of messages from the US going, hey, we're doing this globally now. And you're looking at it thinking, no, come on, we're really not. not that's not going to work in London. And just yeah. the point of not having control over things like that got frustrating. Um, and Dave and I that, that launched Global, we, we were frustrated with the way that sort of big corporates just put KPIs in place for KPIs sake that negatively impact the staff, the candidates and the clients, but you've got to show that you're hitting them just because that's the, the sort of corporate message. And we figured we can, we can do better than this. Yeah. You know, let's get rid of all of that corporate bullshit um, and just start a business that does the right things for the right reasons um, and see what we can do. I mean, the, the idea was never world domination. You know, we don't want to be a, a Robert Half or a, a Michael Page. We want to do a small-ish, growth business that does a great job for candidates and clients that we have fun running um, and that we're proud of. Um, and it's been an interesting journey. And that is one of the reasons, again, why I love these episodes of different mindsets. Like I do interview people that want to grow the biggest firm in the world or the fastest growing or sell for a hundred million. But then equally, I love everyone's got their own version of success and happiness. And I think it's important to show my, my responsibility is to show that there's more than it's not, Growth doesn't always mean the same thing to different people, despite the name, the Recruitment Agency Growth Podcast. Um, so let's go back to the start then. So 2011, you launched it. Yes. What, did you take some time out before? Did you go straight in? Take us back to that time of your life. No, so we, we, we went straight in. So I finished at um, Penta, I think, on the, the second week of September, and we started the business in the third week of September. Right. Um, and I hadn't, I mean, I hadn't made a placement at that point for about eight years. Because I've been running big teams and you know sitting on boards and stuff, and so I'm sitting there on day one thinking, "Fuck, where do I start? Yeah. Can I still do this?" And Dave, who worked with me for a, for a relatively long time, told me later he was sat opposite me thinking, "I bet he's rubbish. I've never seen him recruit. What have, what have I let myself in for? Can this guy even do it?" Um, but you've got no choice, right? You just sit there. We had no candidates. We had no clients. We had no database. We didn't have. A, we had no letterhead for the bank. And it's like, well, what do you do? Just get on LinkedIn, get a list of people and start phoning and headhunting. Um, and so we just started headhunting the best candidates we could possibly find and then started marketing them. And you know, it sounds really basic because it was, because ultimately we're salespeople. You just get on the phone and, and tell people about the products. And we picked up some phenomenal clients really, really quickly. Um, you know, we picked up, I think, Amazon in month three, CBRE in month three, GSK in month two. Um, and it seems that the market was really open to the idea of a small boutique firm that just wanted to do it properly rather than these big firms that, that they were getting burned and churned by on a regular basis. Why did you choose accounting and finance? 
I think it chose me. Um, so I came back from Australia and I, I interviewed for different jobs. I got offered four jobs. Three of them were accounting and finance. One was technology. The technology recruitment job was not the best. So I took one of the accounting and finance roles um, and was successful at it. You know, made money quickly, um, you know, built quickly, got the business up and running, grew the team, um, and then got headhunted to Robert Half, which is obviously accounting and finance. And so just ended up in that, in that world. Yeah. Um, I like the people. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a sort of perception of accountants as these gray, boring people sat behind spreadsheets. That's not what the world is like anymore. You know, the accountants are running the business. So you're dealing with commercial people, business people, professionals that do what they say they're going to do when they're going to do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that makes for a pretty nice uh, recruitment relationship compared to some markets, I think. Um, and the accounting market is a growth market in some regards. It doesn't have the highs of some other markets, but it also doesn't have the lows. Um, so you know you can make good money in it. You can be successful in it without the the roller coaster. Yeah, makes sense. If you think about it, yeah, you'll always need them, right? There's no there's no way in which the market's gonna ever say, "Oh, we don't need accountants for a bit." Like it's just not gonna happen. It's um, it's essential. Do, do they do you let your accountant go, or do you move as much at certain times of year, or at certain economic times? No, but there'll always be a need. There'll always be a strong need. Um, so you've got two of you, you and Dave, are you in a, what, paint, paint the picture of the startup scene. What did it look like when you were doing it? So I rented some desks off of a mate of mine. He had a business development agency for luxury brands in Mayfair. Right. right. Um, so he had about 16 people, very posh, very professional, very well-spoken, doing luxury brand stuff. And there's me and Dave and this other guy in the corner just on our feet selling. Um, and it wasn't exactly a symbiotic relationship. You know, they, they were looking down the nose at us because we were making loads of noise and selling. Um, and so we were just like, look, this is our corner. Let's just make as much noise as we can, sell as much as we can. Um, and so we were just on our feet, just pitching, 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 booking meetings, booking meetings. Um, you know, and I think the, the exciting part at the start is that whatever it becomes is what you're building. There is no preconceived ideas of you in the marketplace. Your candidate proposition can be what you want it to be. Your client proposition can be what you want it to be. Um, and you can really you know, build that message as much as you want to, which I'm sure you've done with your business as well, right? You, you, know, you are creating that and that's really exciting. Every win is a massive win. You, know, you book a meeting with a client, once you're established, you're still, you're still pleased to book a meeting, but at the start, that's a massive win. So it's really, really exciting at the start. And, you know, we were in the office early, we were working all day selling and then running the business in the evening. You know, you're doing all of the, the bits that you're not good at, the bookkeeping and the invoicing and the administration, all that sort of stuff in the evenings because you're not paying somebody else to do that because there's no money coming in yet. Um, Did you tell, tell, tell us about your life outside of work at that time? Like, obviously, now you've got kids, you live in Lisbon. What was your life like then? Uh, I was, I think I was single, can't remember, um, and I was, you know, I, I, I had no commitments. I could yeah. take six months yeah. without without wages. You know, there was, it was very low risk for me. I, you know, I had I had a little bit of money in the bank. I could live uh, for six months with no wages. No one was relying on me for anything. Um, I had a, a house in Dulwich with a, a relatively small mortgage, um, and so I could take the risk. So it was work all day, work into the evening try and run home from work so that I you know, have some semblance of time to clear my head and get some exercise yeah. and go out three or four nights a week, 
um, and, and build the business. And it was, yeah, it was a really, really fun time. I bet it sounds incredible, really. What was, yeah. what was going through your mind when you, when you were starting up and like you say, you've not built for eight years. Cause I think this is a common thing, right? This is really common that I've I, I met so many founders that I think it's partly why I was probably a little bit, why I ended up taking a different route from recruitment to marketing was probably for a while. I was thinking I hadn't built, it was only a year and a half, but I hadn't built for a year and a half. And I was like, do I really want to do it again? Do Can I do it again? Like there's daft questions that go through your mind, but what was it going through your mind and how did you snap out of it? Just, you, I've got no choice. I've got no money coming in. You know, it's a great motivator to sit there and think, well, I've hired this, I've gone into business with Dave, I've hired somebody else, they're reliant upon me to, to do this. I've got to, I've just got to do it. Um, and ultimately, I, I am a salesperson. And, mm. and, you know, even when I wasn't billing, I was still going on client meetings, I was still winning client relationships and, you know, doing lots of sales training. So, you know, the, the actual process of it is relatively straightforward. You know, recruitment is not a cerebral job, particularly. Yeah. Um, it's a process job, it's a recipe job. And, you know, if you're a good salesperson, then I think you can make money. And I, you know, I'm, I am a good salesperson. It sounds arrogant to say that, but I enjoy the sales part. I've put a lot of thought into how you sell recruitment and how you, um, make people feel good about what you're bringing them. And so that part was relatively easy. It was the motivation of, you know, sitting down and going, well, I'm back to day one. It's 150 calls a day again. You know, I've done it before. I'm doing it 15 years on with a lot more knowledge and a lot more skills. Let's just get on with it. Otherwise, no one's going to make any money. Um, and so if you've got no money coming in, it's a real leveler and you, you, you put yourself through it. Uh, and, and that's the bit that I think people need to be confident in that once they get to that point, they'll do it. The, the odd, the, there's been the odd story I've heard where someone took an investment or they've had a massive amount of money behind them and and it, and they don't necessarily have the same level at the start of fight um i had enough that i could probably live for a year but i didn't want to spend it all and i definitely didn't you know we didn't put a lot of money into the business it was just like fuck it and when you're living in london and you've i was you know living with my ex and we were i was still trying to live the lifestyle i was used to living as a recruiter so it was like quite quickly i drained my my finances anyway um so when when did it all start to change then? When did the tide turn and you were in a very profitable position and you could then start making different choices? So we I set a goal of saying I'm going to start paying myself in six months. Yep. Um, so put a revenue goal in and said, okay, if we hit this goal in six months, I can start taking money. And we did it in five, so that was good. Um, we were profitable in year one. I think we, you know, not hugely, we made about 100 grand profit in year one. Um, but you know, hundred grand profit versus hundred grand loss is more than a 200 grand difference. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that was good. And that gave us the money to, to invest in growing the team and stuff. Um, and it, you know, I, I, I made it sound earlier, like we hadn't grown the business. We grew relatively successfully. You know, we did, we, we had a hundred percent growth in year two. So we did three quarters of a million in year one. We did 1.5, 1.5 million in year two, 2.25 in year three. Um, and so it was steady growth. Very good. Um, Very good. And and from, now, how many people did you hire in those first couple of years? Uh, so we got up to seven people, I think, in year three. Um, so, yeah, we, the, the growth plan was always to be circumspect. We never wanted to be in a situation where we'd over-recruited and we're having to let people go because of our mistake. You know, we always want, if we're bringing people in, it's because we know it's sustainable growth and provided they do what they need to do, we can sustain their position and develop them. Uh, and so we always took people on cautiously. 
Um, we never wanted to let people go because of either economic conditions or performance of, of the business. Um, so we invested in headcount. I think we were three on day one. We got to five or six at the end of year one. We got to seven or eight at the end of year two. Um, we got up to about 25 people, I think, pre-COVID. Right. Um, and that was you know, four, three or four people in the US and the rest in the UK. Um, we didn't let anybody go through COVID, so we protected everybody's jobs. Well, that was a big commitment we made to people at the start. Uh, we took advantage of some of the, the, the schemes and stuff, but you know, we, we maintained everybody's jobs and protected everybody, um, and then saw a bit of attrition post-COVID, um, and we're back up to around 27, 28. So growth, headcount growth has never been huge. It's always been circumspect. Um, but the, the performance of the business has always been strong. Are you spending hours on LinkedIn and cold outreach and want more business coming to you over your competition? Well, if you're the founder or leader of a recruitment agency, here's what we can do for you. At Hoxo, we'll give you the training, support and resources to take you from what I call an offline recruiter, reliant on posting jobs and sending in mails to open up new customers, ultimately looking like every other recruiter on LinkedIn, to being an online recruiter, being seen by over 25,000 relevant people, driving a 200% minimum increase in engagement on your profile, and seeing daily lead lists from LinkedIn that you can follow up with in six weeks time. And if you don't perform, you don't pay. Now, why can we make such a bold results-driven promise like this? Well, it's simple, there's two reasons. Firstly, Whilst I've been building the RAG podcast, we've actually done what we say we'll do for our clients. In less than two years, we actually built a business generating from zero to over 1 million views per month on LinkedIn, leading to multi-million pound revenues with a sales team of me plus two people without making a single outbound cold call. Second is our track record. Not only have we done it ourselves, but we've helped over 350 agencies and over 4,000 consultants do it as well, all in the last three years. Now, if that sounds of interest to you, click the link associated to this episode and we can book a call and tell you how we can help. Right, let's get back to the show. So if we look at you, your role in the business then, how did that evolve? So, you know, you've you've managed big teams, 60 people or so. Like you say, you go back to the grassroots, you start enjoying it, you, you're doing well. You're, you know, I imagine you contributed a, a large amount of that, that billings in those first few years. Yeah. Did you... Did you remain on the tools? You, I think you're still on there a little bit, aren't you? Like, what's been the what's been the route for, personally through this? Because one of the biggest challenges you see in recruitment firms is that decision. What do I do? You know, I, every recruitment owner without massive investment has to rain make in the first few years. But then the decision to change or not can affect the trajectory of the business moving forward. Yeah, so I, I build probably for the first four or five years. Um, and you know, build reasonably big. You know, it was five, five, six hundred k a year, yeah. um, which you know was was decent for a business of our size. Um, and then I think year four, I started to give out some of my clients to other people um, because I needed to scale the business. And you can't scale, as you alluded to earlier, you can't scale if it's all you doing it or if it's more more you than it should be. So I started to give out my clients. I'd say year five, six, seven, I probably didn't build. Uh, or didn't build much. Um, we recruited a managing director in year six. Um, so a guy called Matt Wadsworth, who's still with us, he's brilliant. Uh, and that was a big step for us, right? That was you know me handing over the keys uh, to somebody else is quite a big step. And we interviewed a lot of people. And Why? even with Matt, sorry? Why did you even hire MD six years in? Talk us through the journey there. I think, I think you realize what you're good at and what you're not good at. 
Um, and you know, I'm not, I'm not the the management person. I'm not the. I don't manage process very well. I don't manage detail very well. You know, I'm a salesperson. I love the strategy side. I love the people side. Um, you know, and so I wanted somebody who complemented that side of my skill set with the bits that I'm not good at. Um, and so, you who brought, who started it with you? Is he is he still at this point? Dave's still here. Yeah. Dave's um, and and Dave's again brilliant. He's a sales guy. He loves recruitment. He's the most energetic, passionate, active guy in recruitment. He's fearless. He'll phone anyone about anything. Um, but you know, he, he, I'm not speaking out of term when I say he is not a manager of people, and he so has like, no desire to. What were the symptoms then? So let's go to that like year five, six then. Tell us how many people did you have and what were the symptoms that perhaps you weren't, I mean, you know yourself, but you, you have been a 60 person team leader. So you've done it. So what are the symptoms that made you realize that maybe you should focus in a different area and bring someone in to take over this part of the job? So I think we, you, know, you get to a point where the business is too big to not have processes. So to, to not have robust, strong processes. And the idea of being the person that implements those processes, puts the checks and balances in place, um, you know, does the, the management meetings that checks up, that's not me. I, I know I'm not going to do it. I could do it, but I probably wouldn't do it very well. Um, and I certainly wouldn't enjoy doing it. And, you know, if you go back to the team when I had 60 people, within those 60 people, I had five senior managers. And the senior managers would be the people doing the checks and balances yeah. and doing the bits that I, that's not me. No. You know, I'm, I, I'd much rather be driving the strategy, standing up in front of everybody and, and communicating the messages and doing all of that stuff, not the person that sat in a meeting and implementing processes. Um, and so we were at a stage where if we were going to grow further, we needed clear, well-executed, well-managed processes that, you know, the idea of doing it just filled me with dread. Um, and so, you, you, know, you know what you're good at, you know what you're not, you well, want to scale. When you say the business is too big, again, what are the symptoms? How do you know you, you, you what, what, because some people haven't got to this point yet. So what, what's going on in a business that tells you that we're, we're dropping the ball here or we need to change? Things are not quite where we need to be. So when, when there's a handful of you, you all know basically how each other works. You all know basically everything that's going on in the business um, and you can, you can do really well. As you get beyond that point, then you need proper processes. You need, you know, and you someone new joins, you need to be able to give them a manual and go, everybody works in this way. This is the recipe. This is how everybody works. When this happens, this happens. And, and we didn't have that. Um, and so you, you bring in new people and they're not getting up to speed quickly enough because they can't look left, look right and go, hey, okay. Uh, and they, you know, so they, they have to learn. It takes them longer to learn. It's more handholding. Um, and, clients and candidates are not necessarily getting the consistent experience that you would want because things aren't being done in a consistent way. And we don't want to take that too far. We don't want to hire a load of automatons and just you know sit there and, and have them work a recipe. We want entrepreneurship. We want uh, autonomy. But at the same time, we need processes. And so when that started to creak, there were two choices. It's either I get my head down, develop these processes, and start to implement them and really tightly manage, manage the, the delivery of those things. Or I get somebody else to do it. Um, and so, yeah, Matt is, is brilliant. He is entrepreneurial. He does have the flair, but he really enjoys the process side. He really enjoys all of that implementation piece. Um, and so bringing him in to complement what I do 
was was really really useful um and so bringing him in i didn't recruit for a couple of years because i was helping him get up to speed we were doing a lot of planning and a lot of growth strategy and i was focused on training uh, and development of new people and, and you know building out the client base and stuff but then when we launched the us i got back on the tools again um and so that oh, that potentially that was a uh, an error on my part looking back because we probably should have recruited somebody in the US to do that um but in fact what we did was launch sorry. it from here sorry to interject so again because you've not got this necessarily massive plan when you start right but you did call right. it global accounting network which is <laughs> it's kind of big thing big picture thinking right you didn't call yeah. it like Bromley accounting network <laughs> yeah. you call it yeah so you got a big a big mindset um, why did you launch in the US? And like, we're looking at 2018, 17, you're probably starting to think about it, you're launching 19. What was the, yeah. why were you thinking of that? So we wanted to go into some growth markets, some uh, less congested markets. Uh, there are, or there were at that time, fewer recruitment companies in the US than there are in the UK. It still is now, yeah. Yeah, so that's a staggering statistic when you think the market is four or five times the size, right? Um, now, that doesn't mean there are fewer recruiters. There are more recruiters, but they're working for big companies. The pro proliferation of big companies is far higher. And I think at one point, Robert Half in the accounting and finance world had a 40% market share in the US. Um, now, that creates a massive opportunity because you know what we saw over here when we were pitching against the big companies is that Oftentimes, people use the big companies because they feel they have to, because those people are ubiquitous. But the business model of the big companies, as we saw when we worked there, isn't always as good as it could be, in my opinion. Um, so we saw it as an opportunity to, to launch a boutique firm and solve some of those problems again. Um, we looked at some of the less well-trodden paths. So we didn't look at New York, LA, San Francisco, Seattle, Washington, because those markets are as congested or, or almost as congested as London, we thought, right, there's loads of money in some of these secondary markets and there's much less competition. If we're going to invest a pound, where can we invest that pound to get a better return? You know, London's expensive, it's congested. You know, it's a bit of a me too industry at times in London. So we looked at the US, margins are higher. Um, and so we looked at Atlanta, Nashville, Austin, Houston, Dallas, Charlotte and Raleigh because um, we looked, we wanted to look exclusively across the south right. um, and settled on Atlanta. Right. Beautiful place, I believe. I've not, I've flown in a few times. I've never actually got out of the airport in Atlanta. The world's busiest and most efficient airport is what they tell yeah, you while yeah. you're an hour for your bag. I know. Um, yeah. it's, uh, it's a cool city. So it's, uh, it's, it's quite neighborhood driven. You, you need to know which parts of it you want to go to. No. Um, but it's got a, it's got a really cool uh, atmosphere to it. We put the office in a big converted warehouse. The, the first two floors of uh, restaurants and bars and shops. The rest are offices and apartments. Um, so it's quite it's quite it's quite in line with our office in Borough Market at the time. Um, and so it's quite brand aligned. And it's, uh, it's some really cool people working there. So you you personally launched that yourself? Did you say it's like that was your job? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think looking back, we, we potentially would have done it differently. We probably would have hired somebody in the US to do it. But the feeling at the time was that you're not going to hire somebody who's going to be as passionate about it, as motiva motivated by it as you are. Mm -hmm. um, and Matt had a really good handle on the UK business and continues to do so. So it freed me up to do that. And you um, moved out to Atlanta, did you? 
No, so we started, we, we, that was the plan originally, um, but it was myself and another guy, basically back to day one again, just uh, sat at a desk working from you know, midday until 10 p.m. Uh, in the UK, phoning people in the US um, and pitching. So it was literally back to almost day one of Global Accounting Network, except that we had to put on American accents to get past the automated switchboards because otherwise they wouldn't recognize what you're saying. Wow, that's ridiculous. Yeah. They have an automated switchboard, so you couldn't even get in via a gatekeeper over there? No. No, no. But you, but you, you do get put through. But we spent about six months just pitching our hearts out. Um, you know, we did deals, I think, month three, started making regular placements in month five. Um, and then about month eight or nine, COVID hit. Uh, so that was an interesting time. Because you're, um, you're, you're working from 12 till 10 p.m. Did yeah. you have kids at that point? Uh, so my daughter was born a week after we launched the U.S. business. Right. So how, how on earth do you manage that? Uh, it depends if you ask me or my wife, I, I would imagine. Um, it was it was actually it, it was really good being able to spend the mornings at home um, and being able to give my wife some respite during the mornings. Uh, and then my daughter would have a feed at 1030 every night and I would make sure I was back for that. Right. Um, and then I was out of the house for the rest of the, the you know for the day, just banging the phones and, and trying to win business. But um, I think having those mornings was really useful, and I, you know I, I continue to do that. My son was born in during COVID. I was still working US hours, so it's been really helpful from that perspective. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose at the end of the day, as long as you're there for a part of the day, and I mean I'm I've got my first child coming in September. So congratulations, um, thanks, mate. Yeah, I've got two step kids now, eight and nine, and nearly 10 um which is a different challenge yeah um but it's you know having a baby's gonna be bonkers for me um and uh i'm already thinking about the kind of strategy to how i support but also stay on the tools and carry on with my i don't want to drop the ball at work but i'm you yeah. know i also want to be there and be present i think working from home helps that i've got it's funny my office now is the nursery so in in like I'm, my garage is being converted as we speak into my office it'll be done in couple of weeks and then i'll we'll start building the nursery in here and then i'll but the good thing is i'll have separation because right now i jump on the i was on a call at 7 a.m in australia today yeah. and the kids are like arguing about using the shower and it's just distracting as hell and then at 3 34 because we're only 10 minutes from the school five minutes in a car um you know they burst in the house at 20 to 4 and it's like what we eating what we're doing running around dogs go crazy and it yeah. It's really hard to keep that momentum. So, you know, having my own office that is a yard away from the house, but it's locked, it's confined, it's my space. I'm look, I'm so looking forward to that. But then it's yeah, I, I had that during COVID as well. My son was like a year old and my daughter was three. And my daughter would sit outside my office door just saying, I want daddy, I yeah. want daddy. And I'm on a Zoom call pitching for business. And, you know, it's, it's people got used to it, I think, during COVID. But yeah. You know, having that separation is really important. And I've taken a little service office here, um, which I work in most days, just to, to, to continue that separation. Do you think the, again, though, it, it rests on the strength of the partnership with your, with your wife or your husband, right? It's like if they believe in you and they give you and they understand it. Like I've been communicating to my wife consistently over the last six months about, you know, how I want to do what i'm going to do when it's born so i don't think there'll be any surprises of me being out there for a certain amount of hours but coming in and helping at different things um i think it's when you don't have that support or the communication strategy you you can you could really get that wrong 
Yeah, I think she she was great. I mean, my, my wife's very, very understanding. Otherwise, otherwise, I don't think it would work. But, um, you know, I think it was, uh, she was always very understanding of the work stuff. It was when I when I left in the morning to go to the gym as well. And, and that's yeah. that was probably a bit less popular. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, having the mornings when, particularly when the kids aren't in school, like when they're at nursery age or pre-nursery, being at home in the mornings is much more useful because you know working late doesn't matter because they're asleep in bed. Yeah. So uh, yeah. it worked. It worked really well and continues to do so. And I got I, I was really lucky because I got to spend extra time with them that most dads don't get. You know, if, if you're at work from eight in the morning till seven at night, you miss the whole day with your kids. Whereas I was getting yeah. mornings with them every day. So you launched. In the US, it's starting to make money. You get to month eight or so, and then the world fucking falls apart, right? Yeah. And at this point, are you traveling over to Atlanta regularly, or were you? Yeah, yeah, I was doing about 50 50. So, two weeks a month in Atlanta, two weeks a month in the UK. Uh, we got visas and we were we were intending to move out there, really? but we only ever wanted to be there for three years so the kids could be uh, schooled in Europe. And right. so, COVID really screwed that because you couldn't move during COVID. Right. And it meant that by the time COVID finished, we were like, well, there's no point in going now because we, we won't be back in time for the kids to be in school. How, um, did, we were... How did the business? So, imagine going into COVID, you had five day a week in the, in, do you say in Borough Market, you had an office? Yeah. 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 So, how did the business react to that? So we were we were fortunate in that we were um, we were already set up for, for remote working. We didn't do it, but we were, everyone had had the setup. So yeah. when we were forced to do it, it was it was a really easy move. Um, I got COVID right at the start. I was skiing in uh, Val d'Isere and came back with COVID at the end of February 2020. Yeah. Um, and my wife was five months pregnant, and I managed to come back, spent an hour in the house just getting a bag together to go and check into an Airbnb, and managed to give her COVID as well. So I was already unpopular for the boys' ski trip. Then I gave her COVID, and I wasn't there because I was in an Airbnb. Um, and going through all of that at the same time, I was wondering what the fuck is going to happen with the business because no one knew how bad this was going to be. You know, you're still going to have a business in six months' time. What's it going to look is like? Your business, you is your business predominantly perm, I'd imagine? It's about 60-40 in favour of perm, yeah. Yeah. So going into a pandemic with, with perm being dominant, it's, it's even more worrying, right? Because you're like, there could be no revenue or very little amount of revenue coming in. There could be no revenue. You might, you might struggle to collect your cash. Mm. You know, and that's probably the biggest risk is that for your perm revenue and your contract revenues, there's a, there's a big book of outstanding debt there. You know, I think we had somewhere approaching a million in outstanding debt um, that, you know, no, suddenly no one wants to pay you because everyone's holding on to their cash. And, you know, every conversation you have with one of your clients is like, well, we're, we're, we're tight on cash at the moment. You know, we're asking people to bear with us. So, well, I want to bear with you, but if I bear with everybody, I won't be able to pay my pay for my yeah. business. And so you're having those conversations. So the big first thing was make sure, make sure we're on top of collecting cash and we've got, got good processes there. Make sure that we're shoring up our client relationships. And so I'm sat in an Airbnb with COVID, working hours and hours with Matt to get all of this stuff in place um, because no one knew how bad it was going to be um, and at the same time trying to sell in the US and, and trying to make sure that we're still pushing the business forward. So did you have to come and get more involved in the UK business at that point I imagine just to? Um, just from a strategic and tactical perspective so you know like I said Matt Matt is all over that UK business at that time so you know he did day to day he was running it and he continues to do a brilliant job but he and I worked together on what were the tactics for protecting the business, defending the business through COVID? Um, and so I want to, you know, he, he he was still very, very, very focused on helping the sales guys get out and win more business and getting their processes right. And then he and I would work on how do we shore up the business and how, what, what, what measures do we need to put in place? 
um, in order to make sure that we're protecting everybody's jobs and protecting the company. And then how did you see performance? Obviously, I mean, everyone saw a dip and then a, a bit of a hockey stick, but how did it, how did it unfold for you? It was a tale of two halves. So the UK business fared really well, I think, through COVID. So I think the market went backwards by upward of 40% and we went backward by 12%. Right. Um, and that was off the back of a really good year the prior year. And I think that was, you know, it, it was fucking tough. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to make it sound easy. The, the team worked incredibly hard and they did really, really well. Um, the US, it just kind of stopped initially. We didn't have the strength and depths of relationships. And right. the hardest thing through that time was picking up a new client and transacting with them. Because, you know, in, in those circumstances, everyone that's left at the desk is really good because all of the companies have got rid of the, the, the people that weren't so good. So you, all of your competition is their best people. They're all really hungry to protect their relationships. They're all defending their relationships like crazy. And you're pitching, pitching going, well, you know, I know you don't know me, but you should probably give me some business now. Um, and so, you know, winning a new business and transacting with them quickly was really tough. In the UK, we had really strong relationships, really deep relationships, and we're quite diverse so we're not reliant on any one industry yeah. so the team were able to, to fare pretty well through covid and you know we saw some strong performances in the us it was a struggle uh, and we still just a couple of you or did you have a team to support in the us there were three of us right uh, and so you know we we um we continued to do deals but probably you know one or two a month rather than what we used to so we did enough to keep the lights on um and then that picks up towards the end of 2020 in the US and we were able to hire a couple of extra people um, and 2021 was was a bounce back year as it was for everybody. And when did you look at launching the office in, in Atlanta? Was that 21? No, so we did. We already had an office over there in uh, late 2020 and we had one person on the ground in the US. Um, we grew that to two people on the ground in the US just before COVID. Um, and so you know, we, we had people over there but uh, they, they were new. And so, you know, new people trying to make money in COVID was just not impossible. For everyone who wants to launch in the US, like, obviously it's a, it's a whole episode on its own, but yeah, many high level things you learn that you could just, just a bit of advice just for anyone who's listening who's like, I want to launch in the US. Because my understanding is there's, there's a lot of complexities to it. It's not as simple as saying, I want to just launch in the US. And obviously the margins are higher, the notice periods are shorter. You know, there's not as many recruiters. We know all the everyone seems to know that is just why it's this kind of golden bullet. But there is still an element of challenge, and you need yeah. to know what, what, what any advice you could give people that they just even if it's just to check that out or think about that. It's always going to be harder than you think it's going to be. Um, and so you know, the, the, the biggest difference in our, in our market is, is how recruiters are perceived. So one of the things I like about the accounting and finance market in the UK is that there is quite a strong regard for recruiters. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a professional industry working with professionals and you're regarded pretty, pretty well and treated pretty well compared to some other industries. That's not the same in the US. It's a very transactional approach to recruitment. Right. You know, and so, you know, the, the, they don't expect necessarily to meet you. Yeah, you know, and, then, and and so you've got to, there's a bit of re-education at the start. If you want to do it properly, you want to meet your candidates, meet your clients, you know, provide a proper solutions-based service. 
there's a lot of re-education at the start as to why that should happen because clients just want to fire you a job description and send you on your way and candidates want to have a 10 minute chat with you on the phone and then get you to go and do a load of work for them. Um, and actually, you know, if you want proper results and you want to do it well, you've got to educate your clients as to why they should meet you, why they should spend 45 minutes to an hour briefing you, you know, why, why a retainer is good. And so there's a lot of work there to get them to see things in the way that we want them to be seen. Um, you know, they, they, they're quite fickle at the start, I think. I mean, and I know that's somewhat the same in the UK, um, but I think it is far more transactional over there. Um, talent acquisition teams have a lot more, a lot more influence as well, right? So you, you're trying, trying to find a rogue buyer, you know, a director or a VP that's, that's going to go to war for you and get your terms signed. Yeah. That's much tougher in the US as well. Wow. See, I've been told by other people like that recruiting is such a higher brow role in America than it is here. Like, you know, classic recruitment agencies here can be classed as, you know, salespeople like car sales, whereas over there it's a more professional, well-respected role. So you, you kind of challenge that notion. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that's. I haven't. I haven't seen that. I think that um, maybe it's maybe it's our market. Maybe it's the south. Maybe. Um, but I think that yeah, they're just. It's it's an arm's length transactional relationship, predominantly. Maybe, certainly with uh, clients that are used to dealing with the, the bigger recruitment firms, and you've yeah. got to educate them as to why it shouldn't be like that. Has it has that paid off though? Going in there with our with a UK based mindset, UK based process, like. Ultimately, you, you could be a bit slower than they expect because you want to meet them, you want to meet your candidates. Does, you're talking about a much more thorough process. Has that paid off in terms of you're beating the competition that aren't doing it? You're providing a better... Yeah, yeah. Better. it pays off in loyalty, right? So, you know, you, it's it's a, a harder battle to get them to do it, but once they do it, they do it every time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've got you know, significant clients, eight, you know, nine-figure turnover clients that only use us now because of the way we've been able to show them how recruitment should be done. Yeah. Um, and so it definitely pays off. And you know, the, the amount of retained business that we've won from clients that have never done retainers before is phenomenal um, because they're all pissed off with the churn and burn. You know, I had one client who, you know, one of the big recruitment companies had sent him 10 CVs. He'd gone, well, I only like two of them. Can I interview these two? And the recruiter had gone, yeah, I haven't got time to do that for you, but here's their email addresses, reach out to them yourself. Um, and, you know, when you look at that as, a, as, as the base point, and, you know, this is a big recruitment company that's doing well. And then the opposite of that is, well, you know, we'll, we'll arrange the whole thing for you. We'll take a retainer. We'll, you meet four people. Of those four people, you take two forwards, finally make a hire. And that model pays off every time. You know, it, it, you definitely get that loyalty and you get that repeat business. Yeah. Makes total sense. Makes total sense. Um, so we're coming out of the pandemic. And we're only like oh, a couple of years ago, right? Um, and you said there's no point now in going to the US because of the kids. What? Where's the business at this point? And then obviously you made the choice to go to Lisbon, right? Which I want to explore. So where's the business at this point? And what was going on in, in your life that made you decide on the next phase? So the business was, so we're talking about the end of the 2021, the business was five people, I think, in the US, right. um, and probably back up to 14, 15 people in the UK. Um, we were doing well. You know, revenue was good. Profit was good. The UK, the UK business was seeing growth. The US business was seeing growth. But the US business was too heavily reliant upon me. So we're kind of in the US business, we're back to where we were 
2014, 15 in the UK, right? I'm, I'm doing five or 600 grand a year. Yeah. Um, you know, that's 50% of the overall billings for the US business. I need to divest some of that, get the team taking on some more of the growth, um, take a step back from the billing to some, de some degree um, and make the business scalable again. Um, so still running it from here, still selling from here. Um, but at that point, I'm probably only selling to three or four clients myself. And they're clients that, that use us because of me and you know, I'm generating, still doing five or 600 grand, but it's just with three, two, three or four clients. Start to give out the rest of my clients to other people so that they can see some growth as well and, and recruit some headcount. Um, and then about the end of 2021, promoted Matt to look after the US as MD of UK and US as well, um, so that I could focus on the business rather than in the business. So say that again. So you promoted Matt to look over the US as well? Yeah. Right. So what was he showing that made, made you believe he could take that on? Uh, so he built his infrastructure in the UK really well. Um, so we've got good leadership in the UK business um, reporting into Matt, which yeah. gives him the ability to step away from that a little bit. It, it, he needs to be less hands on in that. And then for the US business to scale, well, we're in the same position we were in the UK business when we recruited him, right? We need the processes. We need the all, all the bits that I hadn't so you're done. basically brilliant at getting it going. And then you want... Yeah, I mean, like, the way I think Matt described it is I, I, I have the ideas and get things off the ground and then he, you know, make, makes them good. Um, so, you know, I, I definitely, I love the ideas. I love the strategy. I love the planning. I love getting things off the ground. I'm happy to get on the phone and sell and lead by example. Yeah. As soon as it becomes about you know, putting structure and stuff in place. I'm like, no, so let me, let me launch the next thing. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, a really, it's a really healthy relationship though. It's a really healthy. And where does Dave sit? Is he still in that UK business billing? What, what's Dave's role? Yeah. So Dave's the, like I said to you before, he's the most enthusiastic, most active, most positive man in recruitment. He did 300 grand in Q1, wow. um, you know, on a perm desk, which is just phenomenal. And it, the, the guy is just a machine. Um, and he's still, he's a great sounding board. You know, he's in, he's on the board. He sits in the board meetings. You know, he looks at things totally differently from me, which is always why he and I have bounced off each other really well. Um, and so, you know, he's a, he's a great third partner uh, with Matt and I. That's amazing. And you are, like you say, you all, you are very different. So you bring yeah. Matt in. When, when, what, can you remember when it was that Matt took over that US business? Uh, end of 2021, I think. Right. So then you've had what? Best part of over just over a year and a half, 18 months yeah. or so. Yeah. So then when did you go to Portugal and how did you make that decision? We, we came here a year ago. Um, and you know what? We we were in the office pre-COVID. We were in the office, you know, 8.30 till 6.30 every day and then in the pub and whatever. And it was a very traditional approach to, to recruitment. Um, and then through COVID, we were all remote. I was the only person going into the office at all. And you know, and I think it worked. We were, we were successful. We were billing and people were happy. <laughs> Came out of COVID um, and everyone could go back to the office. And we were in a board meeting one day and, and we're like, all right, so how do we get people back to the office? We've got to get people back to the office. And one of our non-execs looked up and went, why? Yeah. I was like, well, what do you mean, why? Well, why do you want to get people back to the office? We're making money. Everyone's happy. Staff retention is good, blah, blah, blah. Why do you want... And the only reason we could think of was traditional thinking it, it was just how we'd always done it and it would always work so let's go back to doing it and so we said well fuck it let's not do it let's try all this this remote thing and see if we can be a remote first business um and 2021 was a great year fully remote 2022 was a great year fully remote um and so you know people go into the office we've got we've taken a much smaller space now in a we work 
and people go in as they choose and most people are in two or three days a week but we're totally flexible about it and that gave me the freedom because ultimately i didn't need to be in the office either um we didn't want to be in london anymore two tiny children we wanted to be somewhere uh outside of town couldn't work out anywhere in the uk we wanted to be and um, one of my mates lives here came over to visit him for a weekend last february and went fuck it let's let's move to portugal um and so we moved in april did you need to think because of brexit if you've got to get visas or yeah so we had to get visas initially then residency um so i've got my residency we're waiting for the family it's called family reunification so my wife and children haven't got theirs yet which is not a bone of contention at all um and uh yeah but so it was complicated you know took a bit of investment but um it's a it's a great life and you know I'm, i'm very fortunate in the business to have a load of really really good people that take ownership and you know that we can all work remotely here's a message from our newest sponsor in 2023 the recruit hub Are you thinking about starting a recruitment business in the UK or the USA? If you've thought about it, if you've got any desire to start a recruitment business in the future, or you might have just started up and you think, am I doing it right? Then you can download a startup blueprint and access key information. Information relating to funding. How much money do you actually need and what are your options? Knowing where you stand. You know, what is your non-compete and Do you have any restrictions you really need to consider? Do you need a co-founder? What do you need to know about going alone, going with someone else? How to automate your way to billing faster? Business planning basics, things like what is a business plan and how do you write one? Um, and then how do you come up with a name and build a brand? Now, if you are interested in taking this document, our newest sponsor are giving it away for free. They are called Recruit Hub and you can get it at recruit-hub.com forward slash startup hyphen blueprint. The link to this message is in the show notes. So go away, get that free information and see if you're capable of starting a new business or the business you've just started, is it set up for success? Let me know. So when you say all remotely then, when it comes to like onboarding new people and, and hiring talent, I think that is probably the biggest reason people go back to the office. I would imagine it's it's getting those early stage recruiters up and ramping them up. Um it can be done remotely, but it's probably not necessarily what a graduate or what we believe a graduate or a young younger early 20s wants from their life to be sat in a shared flat all day rather than being in an office. Yeah. So like what's your approach to that because I think that's the biggest area of challenge with a remote business. I've got my own approach with within Hoxo as well. So we're pretty flexible on it because you know Matt Matt likes going into the office Elliot who runs uh, part of the business likes going into the office and so people can go in as and when needed um and as I say most people are in two or three days a week so when someone new joins you know it's a fair it can be a fairly intense in office piece at the start yeah. um you know I tend to do my bits of, of training and induction remotely um but Matt's in the office a lot and we'll do stuff face to face but we're inducting people in the US as well so we have to do that remotely sometimes too so we've implemented pretty good processes and pretty good training and development remotely um and it can be you know if someone's relatively junior we can sit for an afternoon with teams open while they're making their calls and do the same listening and coaching that we would do if we were sat next to them in an office so yeah there's lots of things that we can do as workarounds to to provide that training and induction and coaching um i think that we have to be a bit more deliberate with the social side yeah so you know it's not like it used to be at 2 o'clock on a friday ah oh, 
we've had a brilliant week, guys. Let's all just go to the pub. You have to be more deliberate with that. Yeah. But that can also mean that you do more varied things and it can mean that you know that there's more choice in what people do rather than it just always being the same pub around the corner um, followed by the same club or whatever. But I'm nearly 50 years old. I don't know if I want to be falling out of work in, into a pub every day and going to a club. So, you know, it's given me a bit of respite from that. And, you know, it means the stuff that we can do can be a bit more, um, a bit more varied. In terms of the US now, are they, so you say are they, are they similar? They've got like WeWork access and work from home or whatever? Yeah, so the US business, we're in uh, an industrious, um, which is like a, 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 an upmarket we work. Nice. Uh, and, you know, they, they come and go again. Some people are in the office every day, some go in once a week or whatever. Um, and, you know, it, it just works. You know, people are happy, staff retention is really good, and performance is strong. And how does Matt manage it? Is he flying across the two like you used to do? Is he doing a bit more? So he and I alternate. So I still go to the US for about a week every other month. Um, so he and I will alternate. Uh, and spend a week or two out there every month between us. Right. Um, and how often are you back in the UK? Uh, so I visit the UK reasonably frequently, but not. I, I don't work in the UK that much. Yeah. Um, so uh, there, there are some sort of complications with regards to HMRC and stuff as to how much time I spend in and out of the country. Yeah. Um, so I don't work in the UK very often at all. No, right. um, I visit family for birthdays and, and stuff like that. Yeah. But you, you know, unsurprisingly, people are pretty happy to come out here rather than me go there. Well, that's what I was going to say. Have you, have you managed to get the team out and invite them out to see, you know? Not yet, but people, there's some people coming out for my birthday in July. Um, and so, um, and we'll do a, we'll probably do one of our company weekends away in Lisbon relatively shortly. Oh, Lisbon's a location I've never been. I really, really, really want to do it. What, yeah. what, how would you describe the last 12 months then, the lifestyle of what, what's it really been like trying to embed yourselves in a country where you don't even speak the language and, you know. It's, it's, it's great actually because so many people are moving here and everyone's rebuilding their network. Yeah. So there's a real hunger amongst everybody to be social and do sport and get out and meet people. And, you know, so you build your network really quickly. And then when you've got tiny children, you meet parents really easily. And my wife is like super social. I'm, I'm a bit of a grumpy old man. She's super social. So she's out all the time meeting people. And then I get to meet people through her. Um, and, and then because my mate lives here already, you know, we got into various sports and surfing and paddle and whatever. And you meet people through that. Um, and so it's a really easy way to rebuild a network. And then with still work in US hours a lot of the time, I get the mornings to go and play sport, go to the gym, you know, spend some time with the kids before they go off to school. And, and so then start work around 12 and finish later in the evening. So it's been a really nice experience. Um, I think that I'm starting to work a bit more UK hours, so I have some evenings to myself. But overall, you know, it's sunny from March until November. You know that you can be in the sea from April to September, October. Um, it's just a really lovely lifestyle. Is it? What about cost-wise? Well, how does it compare to London? So a couple of bits and pieces are more expensive. Just like, like the amount of expats coming in, flooding the market means that property is pretty expensive. Yeah. Cars are ridiculously expensive because Portugal taxes taxes them to death. Right. So you know, to replace the car that you have in in London over here would be twice as expensive. Other than that. It's pretty cheap. Yeah, yeah. It's considerably. I've heard, we we've got three people in our business living in Portugal, from Portugal. So we, uh, I want to get myself out. I mean, I've been to Portugal, but I want to get myself out there to see them as well. Um, what I love about what you've you said it from the very beginning. You never had the ambition to be a Robert Half. Like it was never part of the journey to right. do that. But you've you have built a global business with 
that I believe it kind of fits around not only your lifestyle, but your personality and, and your aspiration. Like it seems to be like you've created something that, that suits you and is, is allowing you to live a life that you truly want. Yeah, I think you know, it's, I, I, to some extent I fit my life into the business for a long time as well. Um, and so, you know, the first five or six years, you, you, you live to work. That's all you're doing. Yeah. So to come out of the back of that and have really good people in place that gives me that flexibility, I think I'm really lucky. Um, I think some of that has been by design. Some of that has been, you know, by luck or sort of amorphous. But it's all about having the right people in the right places to enable everybody to live the life that they want. And I think that, you know, we're, we're a very flexible, entrepreneurial, autonomous company and people can fit fit in around their, their lives. We just hired somebody who's got a nine month old baby, you know, and, and she's balancing having that baby, working, being remote, coming into the office. And it's really lovely as a business owner to be able to provide that level of, of flexibility and autonomy because I think that's what modern life is about and that's what people want from their careers. We have lost people that wanted to be in an office all day and wanted the, the, the camaraderie and the social side that that brings. But, you know, I think we balance that out by being able to bring in really, really good people that want the other side of that. Um, you know, we do want to grow the business. We're looking at other locations, other territories. We're looking at what's next. Um, we launched a data science and data engineering division uh, about a year ago. So we're looking to grow that arm. So there is growth in, in the pipeline and there is growth plans. And that's, as we've established, that's the bit that I really enjoy is getting those, those startups going. Um, but it still has to fit within the values of what we're doing. So what two questions I've got for you to finish is what is the current economic impact on your business today? Like, how are you, how are you finding things? And then I want to talk about the future. So, you know, we are now Q2 2023, yeah. uh, early May. I think we both agreed offline that we had an amazing quarter in Q1 and then it's been a bit slower. Um, and I'm hearing similar things across the board. So what, what, what are you seeing from a bird's eye perspective across your business? at the moment? So job flow is down um, and it's down in excess of 10% year over year. Right. But for us, our fill rate has gone up. Um, so our fill rate went up from 63% to 78%. So even though our job flow went down, our, our fill rate more than compensated for that. So the net, the you net was, was similar, if not as good. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and, and yeah, I think we did a lot more retained business um, and so we've adapted our model to, to try and make more from less. Um, so if the market's turning, and look, we're, we're a business of 25, 26 people, right? So the UK recruitment market is what, 60 billion? Yeah. Um, regardless of market conditions, there's more than enough for us. Yeah. If we do the right things, if we do the right things, do them well, do them every day, you know, we will continue to, to make money. And that's, that's how we sort of always look at it. You know, you have to adapt somewhat to market conditions, but the market is always big enough for us. Yeah, there's always um, enough out there. And that's the yeah. right attitude to have. That is the right attitude to have. I think if you listen to too much external noise, it can just cloud your judgment and make you fear shit that you can only control your own day and what you do each day. Recruitment's not a cerebral job, as I said earlier, right? You, you know the recipe. You know the things that you need to do to make you successful. I, I recommend to everybody, look at your job to fill ratio, look at your interviews placement ratio, look at the things that are indications of your effectiveness, work out where you can improve the quality and where you can improve the quantity, and then just manage your desk that way. And so if we're doing that every day, if everyone sits there and makes sure they hit their recipe every day, we'll be okay. Um, I think that 
we're not going to see the job flow over the next six months that we saw over the same six months last year. So we've got to be more effective in that. We've got, got to be pickier about the business that we work. You know, if a client just wants to send you a job spec and get you to go and do hours of work for them, don't take that job on. Find a client who wants to meet with you, brief you properly, put a proper plan in place, work with you so that you fill that job. And I think too many recruiters are grateful for the opportunity to work a job rather than deciding whether they want to work that job and whether it fits their criteria. Um, and I think that you know, where, we are, where we're very particular is whether we want to work something or not. And if we, we think the client's going to waste our time or the brief is unrealistic, we're not going to take it on. And so we've got to be very, very stringent in that, particularly as the market. And that's harder in a market where there's less jobs because you, people are like, well, shit, if I turn it away, I've got less, to, less opportunity. Right? That's how people naturally think. But actually what you're saying is, be more selective and really wrap around the right roles and, and again, increase your fill rate as a result, which means your net result will be as high as it can be. It's even more important than soft market, right? Because if you're going to work fewer jobs, the quality of those jobs has to be even better. Because if, you, yeah. if you've only got four or five jobs on and all of those jobs are shit because you've taken on business, you should...
He's back. Sorry, buddy. Not sure what happened there. Are you on your computer this time? No. Is it still on your phone? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know what happened, but it's fine. 103 to 106, so it's about a three-minute hiatus, but that's all good. I'll I'll make a note of that. Um, so, I forget exactly what you were saying. Can you remember what you were saying? Yeah, so I was talking about um, needing better quality jobs in a, in a tougher market. And the... Let's just, just go back to that then. So, you, you, you remember you said... Um, you need to be even more, you know, you need to be even more selective, basically. So start yeah. there and we'll cut that back. Yes, yeah, so if you've got fewer fewer jobs, you need to be more protective of the quality of those jobs, right? Because if you're sat there with four or five jobs and they're all shit because you've taken on business that you shouldn't have taken on, you're kidding yourself into thinking you're going to make money. Yeah. Uh, and you'll work hours and hours and hours for a client that's got no commitment to using you. So it's, you're better off having fewer jobs but having them retained or having them exclusive and having a proper plan in place that everyone's bought into. So you, your fill rate improves and, and you're only busy on things that can make you money. Um, and that's how we work regardless of market conditions, but it's even more important um, in those conditions. Do you, have a, um, do you have like a scoring system or a process internally that enables your, whenever there's an opportunity, it's like, right, we need to measure this now. We need to think about this. Or is it more of a common sense from a recruiter perspective? I mean, there, there are certain things that, that we just won't, work so if a client won't meet you even over a video call if they won't meet you not interested hmm. um so if someone won't spend enough time briefing you on a role helping you understand what they need why they need it what the challenges are so that you can sell it to the best candidates if they won't put a proper plan in place to work with you then don't waste your time no. because it's really easy for a client to give you five minutes over the phone and send you a job spec there's no there's no commitment from them you're going to go and spend hours sourcing screening and, and finding them people and all they've done is really get you off the phone with a job description um and so you know if, if, if for us is they've got to meet you you've got to take a proper briefing you've got to feel like there's a plan in place you've got to have agreed terms if you haven't agreed terms up front not interested you know we're not going to get to the end of a process and then find that they want to pay us a, a ridiculous fee or you know don't want to pay us for six months or want a 12-month rebate or whatever so all of those things have to be done up front to make us feel like this
Sorry, man. Is it what's going on? Is it your phone? Someone phoning you or something? No, it's Wi-Fi. I think. Is it? Oh shit. Well, look. I'll um. Don't worry. I can edit this out. So you said you were talking about like the people, all the processes, and that's cool. And then there was a logical bit. You it cut you off halfway through, but the, I'll just edit about three or four words before at the natural break, right? So I'm going to finish off with a final question now, so we don't have to drag it too much further. But um, but. So that leads me on to my final question, Adrian. I mentioned it before, but like, where are you heading now? So you're in, you know, you're in a great position, global business. You're in Portugal, Atlanta, UK. You, you said you didn't want this ridiculously big business, but you're in a really strong position. So what are you driving for? Why are you still working so hard? Like, what's the point? So I think um, we haven't achieved what we want to achieve yet. We, we haven't got to a point where. We're not enjoying it. We haven't got to a point where we've lost our passion for it. We haven't got to a point where we don't see more and where we don't don't see that we can achieve more doing things that we love doing. I think that's a big part of it, right? If I was sat here every day thinking, fuck, this is awful. Why am I still doing this? Then I'd be looking for a way out. Um, I'm not. I'm, I enjoy what I'm doing. It fits in really nicely with my life. I'm surrounded by brilliant people that, that, that are really passionate about what they do. And, you know, we're still in a business that we enjoy running, that we're proud of, that does a great job for candidates and clients, that makes money for everybody who's successful within it. I think that's really important. Um, and we enjoy doing it. So let's keep doing it. Let's keep growing. Um, the US business is, uh, you know, it's a seven-figure business in year three. You know, that's decent. It's now doing far more of it without me. So we, that frees me up to do the next thing. Um, Matt's doing an awesome job of, of running you know, the UK and the US now. Data is relatively new, so we've got to grow that. But we're looking at potentially other international territories. So I've got conversations with people in other countries. We've just hired somebody in a different state of the US, so there's potential to build something out there. Um, so there's so much opportunity. It's almost a case of sitting there and going, well, Let's, let's pull back a little bit and, and break these opportunities down and look at where we should go next and why. Um, there's some things that we need to do. So we want to grow the contract book so that we're more 60-40 in favour of contract rather than 60-40 in favour of perm. Um, so we're, that's a big focus for us at the moment. I think the data business should be quite contract driven, so that will help with that. Um, so there's so much that we can do. And it's, it's the job of me and the board to sit down and work out, okay, so out, out of all these things that we could do, what do we actually want to do and why and what's it going to lead us to? Um, at some point, the business should be taken over from me by the people that are running the business more day to day. So there's an opportunity for Matt and for Elliot and some of the other guys further down the line to take over a big shareholding and for me to take more of a backseat so that they can take the business on the next part of its journey logical place to be um, but none of us are there yet because we've still got lots of growth and lots of opportunity and lots of things that we want to build out so my actual final question based on you saying that I've got another one um, is what is your job like now then so what do you what do you actually do because you've you have got it to everyone everything seems to be ticking without like without your direct input so what what do you find yourself spending your time on you're going to make it sound like I don't do very much now. You're lazy. Uh, yeah, exactly. I still just sit in Portugal doing fuck all. Um, so, I, you know, as I say, I still I have peaks and troughs of, of being on the tools, right? So January, I had five or six people all come to me with retained assignments. 
Um, and so suddenly you're like, well, all right, I'm going to be busy again for a while. And so don't, don't see much of the kids at that point and, you know, working, working late into the night. So I still do that. And that generates a, a decent amount of income for the business. Mm-hmm. Matt and I still work very closely on the strategy and, and you know, where we're trying to get to. So lots of work over the last three months on the next three year plan. Um, so, you know, what territories, what markets, how, where, how do we grow contracts, all, all the, the strategy. So he and I will work on the strategy together. We'll work on the tactics together. And then he's very good at implementing it. Um, and I, I assist where needed. So there's lots of work around that. I still train, do a lot of training. Um, so I said to you earlier, I'm, I'm, I'm a salesperson at heart. I love being a salesperson. I don't think we should ever apologize for that. No, no, uh, I think the only reason people have a bad impression of salespeople is if they're selling in the wrong way or they're selling them something that's not right. Yeah. Um, and actually, you know, people don't like to feel sold to, but if you can sell the right thing in the right way to someone that needs it and sell it well, then you know that's that's actually a really useful tool. So I take a lot of time in the sales processes and writing the sales training and delivering sales training. So all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, do I work the twelve to fifteen hours a day that I used to work? Probably not. Um, but am I still in a full time job? Definitely yes. And I, I look, I think it's a. As I said, I think you're in a brilliant position. I think you're in a genuine, genuine position that a lot of people listening to this will want to be like you've not figured it all out you're not finished i'm not i'm not suggesting that but you have reached a level in what is it is it 12 years 12 years the point that and again i think so many people have this like short term i've got to hit a million in this 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 many people when you just elongate that 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 time frame so well actually we want to get there but we're not necessarily worried about whether we get there this year or next year or within three months or six months I think a lot can be done and your testament to that. Yeah, you always start the business thinking, yeah, we're going to sell it in five years. We're going to be millionaires in five years and whatever. And yeah, how many people actually do that, right? So, you know, did we achieve what we thought we'd achieve as quickly as we thought we'd achieve it? No. But 80% of UK recruitment companies never get past a million in net fee income. No, no. And we did that in year two. So am I proud of what we've done? Yes. Do I think we've made a shitload of mistakes along the way and we could be further along? Without a doubt, are we going to make a shitload more mistakes in trying to get to the next place? Absolutely. Um, but we we treat people well. We have fun. We built a good business, um, and yeah, we, we're pretty proud of where we've got to. I think there are companies that are bigger than us. There are companies that are better than us. But you know, we are where we are. Where we are. Well done. Look. Thank you so much, Adrian. I've loved it. Um, it's been a pleasure. If anyone does want to reach out to you, pick your brains on anything about the US or even living in Portugal or working remotely, whatever, are you open to that if they just drop you a note on LinkedIn? Yeah, yeah, of course. Always happy. Yeah. Well, that's that's what I'm hoping that people will. I know um, we usually get feedback that they do. Um, I'd love to get you back on in the future when you know, you've know you perhaps gone down the new global routes in different ways and see what actually evolved in the next few years. Um but you stay safe. Look after yourself. Don't get too much sun, mate. You're pissing me. You're pissing <laughs> down. I'm looking out the window at the UK rain, thinking, "Oh, I've made a bad decision." Now. <laughs> just Portugal is. I definitely recommend Portugal if you've got the cho- if you've got the opportunity to do it. Mate, well, well, I hope people make that choice. Take care of yourself, and we'll see you soon. Okay. Thank you, as always, for listening to today's show. I truly, truly hope that you got value from it. That's the only reason I take time every week is to ensure that my audience, future and existing recruitment owners are learning from each other to make this industry that I love so much stronger. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Hoxo Media. I am the CEO and founder of Hoxo Media, and we are the world's leading content marketing and personal branding agency for recruitment businesses specifically. So we are working with over 200 agencies and 2,000 recruiters right now, both managing the brands, producing content, building written, video, podcast content for niche recruitment agencies all over the world, as well as coaching at a desk level individual recruiters in your businesses how to be better on LinkedIn. That's how to brand themselves. That's how to produce content. That's how to use the opportunity on LinkedIn to get traffic to their profiles and turn that into business. We're coaching people all over the world every single day. If any of that sounds of interest, please do visit www.hoxomedia.com or drop me, Sean Anderson, a personal message on LinkedIn. I would love to talk to you. I'll see you soon.